All right, we are, are back in 1 Corinthians this morning and um, really, really enjoying this, this series. I, I trust you are as well. We're, we're continuing this series, um, Gospel Clarity Amidst. Anyone remember? We've been in it for a little bit. Gospel Clarity Amidst. Anyone? Cultural, cultural confusion. Good. Yeah. If you, like the, if you like acronyms, G-C-A-C-C is, uh, is how I've been going at it. So, but if you're not a fan of acronyms, you're probably like, whatever. Whatever, Paul. Um, very interesting. I was at Mission Fest on uh, Friday night, and Abdu Murray, who's with Ravi Zacharias' ministry, he was speaking. And I'll, I'll probably actually share a little bit more about him next week, because some of what he said really fits in was for, was, yeah, sorry, with 1 Corinthians 10. But he gets up and he says his, his title was Seeing the Sun Through the Fog of the, cult, the Confusion of Culture. And I'm like, oh, isn't that interesting? You're copying me. No, <laughs> it's not what I thought. Um, but, you know, the big idea in this series is that we want Scripture to shape our worldview and our lives. That we don't want the world being the one who's shaping how we see things. We want to push back against the pervasive influence of a culture that is so desperately in need of the hope of Jesus. And so that's why we're, we're focusing on this. Corinthians is a letter, again, it's, it's written to the church, right? It's not written to individuals. It is written to the church as a whole and revealing to us how we live in Christ, Christ amidst the godlessness of culture that's all around us. How, how do we actually live for Christ? And so, as we, as we go deeper into Corinthians, um, and, and as we've gotten deeper into this book, one of the things that's been impressed upon me is just how, what a, what a gift this book is to the church. Like, it's written to the church, and it is such a gift for us. And, and I... Um, it, it's just, it's so relevant for us right now. I, every time I'm getting into these chapters and you kind of think, well, how is this going to, you know, touch on where we're at in culture? And it's, it's so relevant each and every chapter that Paul's uh, writing here. And so I'm praying that it's, it's awakening our hearts to truth and that it's awakening us to have a hunger for the gospel to be present in our lives, that the gospel is living and active in your life. So, um, also, just, a, just another note too. I think that sometimes, and, and 1 Corinthians 9 is an example of where when you take the whole chapter at once, uh, it can feel a bit daunting. And so, um, this morning, I'm going to focus in actually more specifically on the first, or sorry, the last eight verses of the chapter. We're kinda, I'll give a little bit of a brief overview of how Paul gets there. Um, I'm not going to read the entire chapter this morning just for time's sake. Um, feel free, if you want to read it, go ahead um, on your own. And, and I'd say next week, come and read 1 Corinthians 10 this week. This week, come and, and having read 1 Corinthians 10 as we get into it next week. So I, I find when I, when I look at 1 Corinthians 9 and as I spent some time in it, the, one of the things that was really made apparent to me is, is this is Paul being very personable. It's Paul being very vulnerable and being very honest about himself um, with the Corinthians. And he's, he's continuing this theme with them on rights. He's talking about rights because the Corinthians put a ton of stock in their rights. The rights that they had were owed this, were do this, this is what, all that kind of stuff. And we champion rights like crazy right now in our culture. The, the thing of rights right now is so front and center for people. And I have the right to do this. I have the right to do what I want. We, we have a museum in Winnipeg that is all about rights. The whole thing is centered around rights. And, you know, we dedicate tens of millions, maybe even hundreds of millions of dollars to this thing to teach kids and others the importance of rights in our culture. And the whole focus is on that. I went to the Museum of Human Rights last year on a field trip, and, I, you know, I was just struck by the, the focus there 
um, and, and some of it how misguided it can be. And I'm not, I'm not surprised. I mean, in, in a secular humanistic culture, I'm not surprised by that, and it doesn't shock me. And, and no one can deny that human dignity and the rights of, of people to self-determination and to safety and freedom, that it's not crucial for the good of society. Of course it is. But there is a ton of confusion. There is a ton of deception when it comes to what is even meant by rights today. How we define rights and what we actually mean by that is actually really important to not when we talk about rights. And probably I'll get into that a little bit more next week. Um, I really appreciate some of the stuff Abdu Murray said about that and how he, he unpacked that on Friday night. But really it's understood right now. Our rights in our culture, one of the things it's understood as is there are no boundaries. I, I can do what I want. I can say what I want, how I want, when I want. You won't tell me that. And it, and it, is, li- it is leading to lives of people living just, there is no boundaries. You cannot tell me what I can and can't do. I can be my own master, really is the what we're, we're walking to that beat in our culture. I can be my own master. I can have my own self-determination. And so that becomes problematic when you get into the Word and Scripture clearly says, no, there's, there's boundaries to life. And, you know, we, for followers of Jesus, there, there's a crucial distinction here, actually, that's a game changer or a game changer. It should be a game changer for our lives. And that is, what does the gospel call me to? What does the gospel say about my rights? Not what does culture say about my rights. What does the word of God say about my rights? And so we're going we're gonna to get into that a little bit. But Paul, he's, he's challenging the, the Corinthians, their obsession with rights. And, and perhaps I think it's maybe because this thing of what they could do and the rights that they had had become such a preoccupation to them to the harm of the gospel in their lives. And Paul was seeing that and he's addressing it. And, and you know, it certainly, it se- certainly seems that way. And, and this, this thing of this preoccupation with rights this is a, a real danger for the church today as well. This is, this is something that is infiltrating the church because it's so pervasive in culture. And so there, there is a need for us to push back and go, what does the word tell me about rights, about my rights? And so verse, verse 1 and 2 here in, in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul, he, he lays down, if you will, his own claim for credibility with, with them. He says, Look, my, my credibility is my freedom in Christ. He says, it's my apostleship. He says, the Corinthian church itself is proof of, of who I, my apostleship. He, he, then he talks about his physical encounter with Jesus. He says, my meeting uh, with the risen Lord Jesus, me, actually, it wasn't just a vision. It was, I met the living Lord Jesus. That is proof of my credibility. And then he says, and my work in Corinth, my workmanship, my work amongst you people, what I have done and the foundation that I've laid here in this church, he's saying, that is proof of my credibility of how I can speak to you. And so he gets into that. But then, and then he goes into a bunch of that stuff with rights. And then yet in verse 15, he says, but he says, I'm not making any use of these rights. Like I've got a bunch of these rights, but I'm not making use of them to you. And he's kind of saying like, look, I could, but I'm not. He, he says, I'm not, I'm not looking for accreditation. I, I'm not, he says, I'm not even looking for provision through this. I'm not, I'm not saying all this because somehow I expect provision through this. He says, and although even in that, he clearly lays out. He says, no, I could seek provision in this if I really wanted to. And he lays that claim out in, in 1 Corinthians 9. But really what he's getting to is, in all of this, he says, what matters is the work of the gospel. What matters for me is the call that I have to preach the gospel and the work of the gospel in my life. It's, it's interesting because when you read it, what you see is that Paul, he's chiefly concerned with his own freedom to restrict his freedom for the sake of the gospel. So he's concerned with his freedom to the extent that it actually restricts his freedom 
for the sake of the gospel. It's all about the gospel. Paul had a, he's got this impressive list of rights and claims that, and he lays it out in other places in the New Testament too. And, and yet, he lays it out and then he says, but I'm not, I'm not claiming any of those impressive lists of rights that I have. Everything that I have is to serve the gospel in my life. Now, when you read 1 Corinthians 9, I think there's a temptation to read it and to think, but this is the Apostle Paul. Or, like, this is the Apostle Paul. This was his call. This was his purpose. This isn't me. We're, we're talking about a super apostle. And I think that we can be tempted to read this and go into that sort of looking at this. And in putting the focus on rights, what Paul's doing here is he's calling the church to more. He's calling us. God is calling us to more through this. There's a reshaping of how we live in light of the gospel. And that's, if, I would, if, you, if you see that, see that through this text. There is a reshaping to how you live in light of the gospel. In fact, Paul says earlier in Corinthians, I think it's 1 Corinthians 4.16, he says, be imitators of me. And then in case they had missed it, he goes later in a couple chapters down in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, be imitators of me. So he's, he's saying to the people, I'm not saying this just so that you look at me and go, oh, well, this is the Apostle Paul. He's saying, no, I'm, I'm saying this that you would imitate me, that you would follow my example as I follow Christ. And so if, if I allow myself then to get into any form of thinking that compartmentalizes this in this is him, this isn't for me, it doesn't apply to me, this was Paul's deal, then I'm ignoring the clear teaching of Scripture. It's really clear here for us. This is for us. It's written for us. It is the call to the church to preach the gospel, to lay down our rights, and to make disciples. I recognize, I don't know if maybe you feel this, if any of you have read 1 Corinthians 9, maybe if any of you read it this week, I read it and I go, this is a real challenge to the church. This is a call to us as the church in light of, I, I can't deny what Paul says here. I can't deny how he calls us to imitate him. I can't deny that it's clear in Scripture that we are called to follow this. And I go, this is a big challenge. And I think that we're meant to see it like that, that, that this is, a, this is a, a call to the church of how we live our lives. So, let's read verses 19 to 27 together. It'll be on the screen behind me if you don't have your Bible with you. Verse 19. Paul says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant. That, that word there, servant, that means actually slave. Yeah, our, our English language kind of creates, puts a nice little, it's, he says, I'm, I, I make myself a slave to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I became all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Lord, we... 
we want to give you this morning and we want to give to you these next few minutes that we have together and we want to ask that you would do something extraordinary in us to open up our minds, to change our hearts, to take us to where you, your purpose and your will is for us to be as a church in preaching the gospel, reaching the lost, and having this as central to our lives. Lord, I want to pray that you would, your word would be ignited in us, that it would burn like a flame in us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So my title this morning is by all means. Paul uses that phrase there. In I want to I talk this morning about three actions that I believe these verses tell us we're to aim to in our lives. And so the first one is, by all means, aim to win. Aim to win. Five times in verses 19 to 23, the Greek word for win there is used that I might win, Paul says, in order to win. And he says it, it's like it's, it's, there's huge emphasis on that I might win, in order to win. And he, he goes back and forth to it. And Paul, when we read those, do you not see like that there is just this passion and this motivation for the increase of the gospel in the lives of people on behalf of Paul? Like, doesn't it just, when you read it, you, you can just imagine him as he's writing this. Like, he's just like, I do it by all means. I do it for, by, by any means, all for the sake of the gospel. Like, this is, this is my heart's cry for people. You can just almost get the sense through the text of just how passionate this was for Paul. I tend to think Paul was probably a sports fan in his day. He uses a lot of sports analogies, actually, in the, in the epistles. He, he goes back to it several times. Um, and he uses some here, some sports imagery from the day. And, and, but what he's doing is he's using it to drive home for the people the importance of the gospel. He just he wants them to, like, I want you to get this. These, these verses, they have a, a number of phrases of, that reveal how central this hope of Jesus for people how central that was for Paul. Like, I want people to know, people need to know who Jesus is, the hope that he is for them. And so he says there, he says, I, I'm all things to all people. And we, we, like, by all means, I might save some. I do it all, all of it's for the sake of the gospel. Just, just think about that, like what Paul's laying down there for himself. There was no holding back for him. He wanted to win people to Jesus, to have them come into a relationship with Jesus. And it wasn't, it wasn't complicated for Paul. There was a clear focus here. Whatever I'm doing, my focus is I am going to preach Christ, I am going to declare Christ to people by all means. So he's, what, what is that? Well, he's, he wants to declare Jesus is the risen Savior. That's the truth. He is the only one, the only one who can save people from the destruction of sin in their lives. There is no other hope, no other hope on planet earth for people to get free from their sins. It is the risen Lord Jesus. People need to hear the good news of Jesus. So right now in 2020, in Landmark, in all regions around here, people need to hear the good news of Jesus. It is their only hope. There is no other hope. Zero. I, I walked, I was in the university visiting a friend this week. We were walking in the university and, and meeting some students and we walked by the Muslim Association table and we engaged them a little bit and, and like I know God's calling me to love Muslims. And I picked, they gave me a copy of the Quran because I, I want to actually read it. And, but, I, but as I'm standing there, I couldn't hope but think as I walked away going, there's no hope in this. Like zero hope. They're doing all this work and there's zero hope. If they come to the end of their lives and they have not met Jesus the Messiah, there is no hope. It's a really simple truth. This has not changed for the church. We haven't moved off this in the 21st century. And if we have, we're in big, big, big trouble. 
Because in case we get sidetracked, Paul makes it clear. He says, like he talks about winning a lot. And then in verse 22, he, he talks clearly like, this is about people being saved. People need to be saved. So what Paul's saying is, it's, what is at stake isn't simply the, pers- like, whether I'm, I'm persuasive enough with people, like whether I do enough to win them. That, that's, you know, if, am I going to be good enough at selling the gospel? That's not what Paul's ultimately getting at. This is about people's eternal destiny, he's saying. And, and we can see from what Paul writes here, like he's taking a lot of heat on all sides from this. So he's got the Jewish um, kind of corner in the church who they're coming at him and how he's operating. You've got the Gentiles and they're, and, and so he, like he's, he's, he's got all this stuff on all sides coming at him. And, and Paul, he says here, look, I know who I am. I am free in Christ. That's what he starts off with. I have freedom in Christ. So meaning I am under the law of Christ. Ultimately, I am under Christ. My freedom is in Christ. Everything is submitted to Jesus. That's what it means. it means to be under the law of Christ. Everything. I'm submitted I, that I might know his death, right? I may live in his death, all that stuff for Paul. But he was willing, and this is what I find so interesting about him. He was willing to operate under the cultural expectations of people in order to win them to the gospel. Like Paul was hardcore. He was really hardcore. Read Acts. He circumcised Timothy when they were going to a certain group because he thought it would actually help in winning them to the gospel. (laughs) So he says to Timothy, you better do this. We don't talk about that a lot on Sunday mornings. He circumcised Timothy because he thought it would win people to the gospel. He was hardcore. He took a Nazarite vow. He shaved his head and went to the temple when people were like, what are you doing? Because I want to win people for the gospel. Like he was really... And, and, and then other times when they wanted him to circumcise Titus, he's like, no, 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 no. I'm not doing that. Because he knew that wasn't going to do anything. He knew that, that those people who wanted that to happen, they weren't serious about pursuing Jesus. He was, I'm not doing that. Paul was, he was versatile. He was adaptable. When it, when it came to the gospel, he never compromised his submission to Jesus. Do it all for the sake of the gospel, he's saying. And, and he's, not, he's not meaning there like that somehow we can justify sinful behavior, like, oh, I'm doing that because I'm doing it for Jesus. It's all, no, no, no. Like he said, I, everything is submitted under the law of Christ. Everything is submitted to Jesus. So this, this is really challenging stuff for us. For the Apostle Paul, every encounter, every personal habit was under the control of Jesus Christ as Lord. The gospel directed his whole life. He lived in light of eternity. I mean, we sing that this morning. Oh, death, where is your sting? Do you know what that means? It means you were never meant to die. No one is meant to die. You die physically, but you are meant to then enter into eternal life. And if you're in Christ, you will never taste death. In Christ, we will go on to live forever and we will live in the new heavens and the new earth. That is the promise. When we live like that and you have that perspective in life, I'm not living for this earth. I am living for the new heavens and the new earth and for eternity with Christ. I think that kind of changes how we live now. And what we see here is a way of living, and I'm, I'm purposely, I'm not using the term here evangelism because we hear evangelism and we put it into a little box. That's for some people, or that's for, we do evangelism in spurts. We go do campaigns. No, this was a way of living. Paul said, this is who I am in Christ. He says here, I don't, I don't want to put any obstacles in the way of people finding Jesus. It's like he said in 1 Corinthians 8, I don't want anything I do, don't let anything you do be a stumbling block to someone finding Jesus. Nothing. We don't want to water down the gospel either. That's a really important fact here. The gospel is complete surrender to Jesus. It is. The gospel is complete surrender to Jesus. That's what it calls us to. So what, what was the problem, though, that had, had crept into 
Corinth, into the church, and threatens us as well when it comes to this. I think that it's comfort, it's rights, it's personal pleasure, all that stuff had led them to a place where Paul's saying you've compromised the gospel. So where are we at? Where are we at right now in our culture, in our town, in our various communities? Where are we at? Because I think we need to cross this cultural gap that exists. We have this, the, the, the gap between the Christian subculture of church and then there's the culture all around us that are living outside of the church. And we need to bridge that gap. We need to somehow begin to talk to people, engage people with the gospel. That gap will not be closed by compromise. That's not what we're looking at. It will be closed by people whose singular passion in their life is, I want to reach others with Jesus. People who are willing to sacrifice over and over and over again in their lives for the gospel. People who don't live in fear of what others will say to them or about them. They will go in the love of Christ and they will engage people. And we won't have fear about what, how that's going to go. People who love others but love Jesus even more. It's going to be people like that. Yeah, we love people, absolutely, but we love Jesus even more. We have a burning passion to see the fame of Jesus. Paul says it here. He, says, I, he, he talks about all this. He says that I might share with them in its blessings. So here, we need to hear this. The gospel is blessing in the lives of people. The gospel is one of the greatest blessings that people can encounter in their lives. So all this means that the gospel becomes priority in our lives. We, we live the gospel in our lives visibly and openly. We're, we're winsome. I think that's what Paul's getting at here. In that, you know, when he talks about winning, we're winsome with the gospel. We love people. We talk about Jesus. We, we offer to pray for people. All that's, why? Because, well, we're not our own. We were bought with a price. So we glorify God in our bodies. We glorify God in, in the use of our time. We glorify God in, in how we live. We live for others. So this is about living lives with integrity. It's about relationships with adaptability. And it's personal holiness with a single-mindedness for the gospel. Do we, do we need a shift in our thinking? I, I wonder sometimes about that with myself. And what I mean by that is, I think Jesus, when, I, when people see Jesus, I believe that Jesus is irresistible. I believe that Jesus, when people meet him, he is irresistible, and I think that people need to meet him. And I don't think that people actually are. I think they're seeing a whole lot of stuff and they're hearing a whole lot of stuff, but are they actually meeting the risen Lord Jesus? And I think we need a, a, shape, a shift in our thinking because I believe that Scripture is true. I believe that there's a great harvest out there waiting for us to reap. So this, this brings the question then down for all of us. How are you doing? How, how is your relationship with Jesus? Because underlying these verses, what, what, what I feel the Lord is, is challenging me is, Paul, do you want to live this out? Do you want to live this out? How comfortable are we in our comfort? Because we can come up with all sorts of justifiable reasons. Schedules, busyness, responsibilities, a list of why we just don't have time to share the gospel with people. Oh, I, you know, I just got to that moment and I just, ah, I just couldn't do it. There's all sorts of reasons. 
second thing that I believe that we're, by all means, we're called to aim to, and that is we're, by all means, aim to run. Paul uses the imagery of, of runners in a race here. And, and he acknowledges the effort and the drive that goes into training for competitive races. And he, he talks about that there. And this, this focus that, that runners have in professional competitions, and this relentless pursuit, he's saying, and what, he says, what is it for? It's for perishable glory. The, the death of, of Kobe Bryant and his daughter and seven other people in a, in a helicopter crash um, two, two weeks ago, it, was, it, it shocked a lot of people. It, uh, there, there was a ton of mention of it all over the media. It dominated social media and dominated the headlines. And it, I found it really peculiar that Kobe and his daughter, 13-year-old daughter, got named a lot, and the seven other people on the helicopter you knew nothing about them other than their names. Really, that's all you, you just got a list of names. And, and I, growing up, I mean, I've liked basketball and I, I was a fan of Kobe. And so, I mean, at first the, the news, you're like, wow, like, he's, he's a year older than I am or two years older than I am. So it's like, wow, like, whoa. Now, you go, why, why was Kobe, why was there such a focus on him? Well, he had this crazy drive athletically. He was, he was so accomplished he, he had success like few in sports do. I mean, the, the guy was just an accomplished athlete in person. He, he was revered. And let's be honest, he was actually, he was worshipped. Kobe was worshipped by people. That, that's, and that's why it was such a big deal when he passed. He won all sorts of glory for himself. But all of it, the glory he won on this earth, all of it ended in a moment when he passed into eternity. And amid, I thought about this. Amidst all this acclaim, does it mean anything to him now? Like, like still, people are going on and on about Kobe and his daughter. Does that mean anything to him? It means nothing. I, I'm not trying to be you know, rude in this, but it means absolutely nothing to Kobe Bryant. Did it have any advantage for him when entering eternity? No. He, his, he doesn't get to eternity and go, six NBA championships... If Kobe Bryant didn't know the risen Lord Jesus, that's the most important thing right now for him. Did he know the, the risen Lord Jesus Christ? And Paul points to the, the commitment here and the dedication of athletes. He said that they're, they're pursuing glory that won't last. He says, you have the promise of eternal glory. What you're going for is imperishable. Like it, it doesn't even compare to what these athletes are going for. And he's saying your dedication should be just as evident. So maybe we read this and we go, well, what's he really getting at? Well, Corinth was the center of the Asmithian games at the time. So th that, those games happened every two years. They were second only to the Olympics. So they were, they were a big deal. So Corinth ha also had a huge stable of athletes that probably lived there, trained there, and so the, it was all around the church. They, they knew what Paul was getting at here with these athletes. And he's saying, if, if all this, if all that you're seeing them do, if all the training you're seeing them go through is all done for perishable rewards, what is the responsibility on those who will receive eternal glory? What, what, what is the responsibility on our gospel witness in light of, of what we are going to receive. I don't, I don't know how many of you enjoy hockey or how many of you know, any of you, who knows who Connor McDavid is? A few of us, right? He's a pretty big deal in the hockey world. Probably regarded as right now, arguably the best hockey player on the planet. Um, his, his, his commitment to hockey has been documented over the years. But last season, the last game of the season, uh, he suffered a very serious injury in the very last game of the season. I want to show you a short video here of what, what happened. Here comes McDavid. McDavid flying in. And he crashes into the Flames net. 
holding his left leg, and he is still down on the ice, as you can see. It's the left leg that makes the initial contact right there. I thought my leg was in, in two pieces. I was just worried to stand up. I thought my leg was just going to give away it. And they are going to try to get him up onto his feet here. You know, our fear for Connor throughout his career so far is he's going too fast. I held it together until we got through the tunnel and, and I was I was a mess. PCL's cut right in half. Here at the back of the knee joint, there's a lining It's completely torn. It's torn many other things. Not only a bone bruise, but a crack in the front of his tibia. And basically, he said that the doctor told him that if he didn't have surgery, like now, he needed surgery. There was no question of that. I got to make this decision at 22, and I got to make it in 24 hours. It was already scheduled. The surgery was, was scheduled. He knew if he had surgery, it was going to be a 10-month rehab. To go a non-surgical route with that severe of an injury, I've never done that before. He certainly questioned whether or not he would have a career, whether he would play at the start of the season. I looked at my calendar and I said, training camp? And he said, yep. Yeah. And I said, okay, we've got work to do. Connor McDavid made the decision. He wanted to rehab this. No one has done what, what Connor has done to rehabilitate himself back from a serious knee injury in that period of time. So you saw some of those pictures there, the video of him doing his rehab. What he committed to, I, I read an article about it, was simply extraordinary. 10 hours a day, seven days a week. That was his rehab. At first, all he could do when the injury first happened was lay in a hyperbaric chamber for two hours a day. And for those two hours, he had to flex his quad muscle 10 seconds on, 10 seconds off for two hours. That's all he could do to try and save his quad muscle. And, and what happened is, eventually, so all this rehab, the PCL fibers in his knee began to grow and reattach without surgery. And the, the video there at the end of him scoring that goal, that was the first game of the season. He didn't miss a single game. And you look at that, you look at that dedication, that commitment, all of it, is for perishable glory. All of it. It's just for hockey. Now, and you look and you go, it's, it's unbelievable the self-control that he had to put himself through the rigors of that for months, 10 hours a day, simply so he could play hockey. And, and you look and you go, it's inspiring. Like, it's, it is inspiring going, wow. But that pales in comparison to what we have in Christ. And what is at stake for people on this earth? The question is, do we believe that? So we're exhorted to run. Live with purpose for the gospel in your life. Live with purpose for others. In his first letter to, to Timothy, Paul says, he says, train yourself for godliness. He says, bodily training is of some value. But godliness is of value in every way. It holds promise for the present life and for the life to come. I find it interesting, you know, given the focus of physical fitness in our culture, this is a provoking verse for us. What is the training regime in your life like when it comes to godliness? How are you training yourself for godliness? And there's a cost, and that leads me to my last point. By all means, aim to sacrifice. Our culture says, make yourself great, do what makes you feel good, 
Organize your life around your ambitions and goals. Maximize your effort into those things that will benefit you, will give you pleasure, create wealth for your own enjoyment, and to serve your future. Do it all. Me, 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 me. All of that, all of which Scripture calls running aimlessly. Because it's purpose that ignores the reality of eternity. It's purpose that ignores living to serve the needs of others and make Jesus great. And so Paul says, to, to, in order to, in an effort to live a life that isn't aimless, but has direction and purpose for the gospel, he says, look, like when, when you box, when someone boxes, you don't want to just continually box the air. You want to hit something. Why? Because you want to make an impact. We want to make impact in our lives. And so we, we can read verses 24 to 27 here, and I, I think we can feel discouraged or we can feel worried that we're not doing enough or we're going to somehow fail to meet the mark, where Paul says there, like, I, might, I, might, I feel like I might fail to meet the mark and I might be disqualified. And maybe we're fearful of that. Now, I'm not, I'm not going to let us off the hook this morning. And that the gospel does call us to sacrifice. The gospel does call us to surrender. It calls us to examine our lives. It calls us to radical obedience to Jesus. Absolutely. We have a mission. But we also need to understand what Paul is getting at here. Because that, that word for disqualified and the word for will test in 1 Corinthians 3, there's... Um, He's talking about what foundation we'll build our lives on and, and that it will, be, it will test what we've done in our lives. And so that word there for will test and the word for disqualified, it comes from the same Greek word. And that Greek word is used in 2 Corinthians 13, five times, where Paul talks about examining yourself. And he talks about do not fail to meet the test. So what he's talking about here is don't fail to meet the test that the Lord is putting before us. The point is that when we are in Christ, we can't lose our salvation. This isn't about being disqualified and losing our salvation, but we can lose reward. We do that by pursuing a life built on our own resources for our own glory. The danger to live for self is real. It's very real in our culture. So, how do, how do we bring this down to a, to close, how do we bring this down to a rubber meets the road sort of level for us? Where does it get real for us in our lives? How do we apply this? How, how do we engage people and how do we share Jesus in our lives? That's where it gets real. There, there are people all around us who are on their way to an end that will be horrible. There's people all around us who, if they don't meet Jesus, they will go to an eternity without him. They will go to hell. Hell is real. It will never end, and it will be horrible because it is without the presence of God. That is real. That's what's coming for people. So people need to hear that Jesus saves. People need to hear that Jesus heals. So how do we, how do, we do this? How do, we, how, do we, how do we begin to move towards that? Well, pursue healing and freedom in your own life. It starts, it starts where, how am I doing with Jesus? It means pursuing growth in Christ. It means getting into the word daily. It means listening to what the word says. It means doing what the word says. It means that scripture becomes at the front and center of how I live my life. I'm following the word of God. Make prayer an active part of your life. And then offer to pray for people. As, you, as you're engaging people and you're hearing things, there is always things that we're hearing where we can stop and say, hey, do you, do you mind? Can I, can I just pray for you? Would that, would that be okay? There is multitudes and multitudes of opportunities to do that with people. And there's multitudes of opportunities with people as we do that to say, hey, can I, can I share with you about how I found Jesus in my life? And it doesn't have to be complicated. It's really simple. And 
Uh, I was just thinking about this. If, if you're wondering, well, how do we do that? Last year, there's two messages in our archives that we preach of practical tools to share the gospel. Go back, listen to those. There, there's great stuff in there about how do we practically share the gospel with people? How do you do it? How do you engage people? But I, I read this, and while it really challenges me, it also it really encourages me. This chapter really encourages me because God put this in the word for us. He put this to fill us with boldness, to fill us with mission. This is God's heart for people. This is God's heart that we would reach people. If we take God at his word, and we can, I actually believe that we, if we live this out, you can expect, we can expect great results. God wants people to hear about him. So we've been, we've been praying about um, launching Alpha as a church and we've been talking about this and praying about it. And, and the reason is we feel compelled. We want to be reaching the lost. And, and I, I suppose that's a question I put to all of us. Do you feel compelled in your life? Is, it, is there a compulsion in you? I want to reach the lost. I want to engage people with the message of Jesus. That's, that's where it starts. But we, we felt in this, in talking about Alpha and, and praying it through, we've actually, we felt the Lord has, has been giving us some direction. We're going we're gonna to continue to talk that through. We're going to talk through some of that at our church family meeting uh, on the 18th. And we, we want to we we flush it out practically. How do we practically engage people with the gospel? There's things that we can do to step out of our comfort zone and begin to engage people. And I think that there's people who want to hear the gospel. There's people who want to hear about Jesus. So we're going we're gonna to conclude here with communion. And we're going we're gonna to bring this back to where it all begins for us. And that is the cross. It's where Paul begins with the Corinthians. He starts with the cross at the beginning of the letter. Because it's at the cross where we find healing and salvation. It's at the cross where we recognize how much has been done for us, what Jesus has done for us. It's at the cross where we find the motivation, the boldness, and the desire to reach others with that same message. When we understand what Jesus has done for us. Thinking, I was thinking about this last night and, and uh, we, we talk about the cross. We talk about this is where it begins. What, what does it mean? What does it mean? It means that we were separated from God. The Bible says we had no hope. It says we were without God in the world. You, you were separated from God there was no hope of you ever having relationship with God. You were, you were doomed to destruction and wrath. This is but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. It says even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And it says it goes on there, I'm talking, I'm, I'm, that's out of Ephesians 2. Um, I, I, Ephesians 2 is just so amazing in telling us where we were at, what God did for us. It says that Jesus, he himself is our peace. He's reconciled us to God. Without Jesus, we are dead in our sins. But when we receive Christ, it says there, we are made alive together with him. It is, it is the difference between death and life. That's the gospel. That's the cross. And, and there's this incredible promise there in Ephesians 2 where it says, in the coming ages, he did this, in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches, the immeasurable riches, so like no bounds of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's why. 
So think about that there's immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness that we receive now and it's coming in the ages. It's never going to end. Now, okay, when you hear that, does that not go, wow, God is so amazing? Should that not also we go, wow, I really, really want other people to know that. I really, really want people around me to know the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness in Christ Jesus. So that's, we do communion because we remember and it calls us back going, we, are, we need to be saved, we are saved when we're in Christ. So, we're going to do communion here. I'm going to invite you to, to come up and, and to just grab the bread and the juice for yourself. And, uh, you know, if you're here and, you're, and you go, you know what, there's stuff, there's stuff happening in me that I, I, need to, I need to deal with and maybe, maybe I shouldn't take communion. That, that's, that's totally okay. Um, Paul talks about that in, in Corinthians where, you know, we need, we need to examine ourselves before we take it. Um, I felt like the Lord, the Lord put some things before me last night, and so I'm, I, I'm not sure that I'm going to take communion today because I feel like there's some things I need to reconcile with the Lord. You know what? That's okay. It's, that's, that's about just being honest with the Lord. Um, communion is for those who are in Christ. It is for those who have put their faith and their hope in Christ. And if you're not in Christ, hey, you can still receive everything we have here and, and receive the blessing, but communion is for those who have received Christ. Okay, I want to, I wanna, as, we, as we go into communion, I want to put two questions before us. Or did, did you have questions, Carlin, at all that you were going to? Yeah, okay. I want to put two questions. They'll be on the screen that for us to think through as we, we take communion and we go into our chairs here for the next couple minutes. How am I doing with Jesus? How will I commit to sharing Jesus with others? And allow the Lord to speak to you. Invite the Lord to speak to you in that. Invite, invite to hear from the Lord on that.